we praise you this day. You are alive. And with the bursting forth from the tomb of our Savior, so, is, so were the hopes of our eternal resurrection lifted from the grave of sin. We thank you, Lord, that as we open your scriptures, we see the revelation of the sovereign God ordering perfectly through all of the details of history, the plan whereby we might be saved. We thank you as we open your scriptures, we see the testimony of truth revealed to those who don't deserve it, lost in their transgressions and sins, even those of us born here in this fallen world. Yet by the Spirit's mighty work to open ears to hear and eyes to see, you have awakened the lost unto newness of life and given us desires to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and given us a new destiny, Lord. The glory of Christ revealed in all of history unto the redemption of his people and the world in the new heaven and new earth. It is this city that our forefathers looked to, whose designer and builder was God. It had foundations that could not be shaken by the whim and the will of man. And it is this allegiance, Lord, that inspires us as we read your scriptures and reminds us of hope eternal secured in the promises of God and in the work of our Savior. As we open your scriptures, I pray that you would deepen our faith. Awaken our understanding and sharpen our witness to proclaim you boldly even in our day to be counted among the faithful who though were born in sin were transformed and redeemed by the preaching, the application of the word of God, heart and soul and life. I pray that this would happen as a result of your word proclaimed by your spirit's use of these means today to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ and the advancement of his kingdom. In his name we pray. Amen. Praise God. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to return to the anchor of our souls in proclaiming the word of Jesus Christ each week. It seems in our day it's as needful as ever, does it not, to find our footing, our foundations, to reattach our souls to the anchor which is unshakable, the word of God, which is alive and well and necessary to equip the young man, the young woman in training for righteousness which is quick and powerful to divide, uh, even as a discernment tool between soul and spirit, and which is a hammer that breaks the rock of unbelief and idolatry in pieces and is the foundation of God's purposes through all history revealed unto the praise of His name. So as we turn to the scriptures today, I'd invite you to turn with me to Genesis 23. Genesis 23 will continue in our Genesis series this morning. This is a chapter in Abraham's life. As his days are coming to a close, the title of this morning's message is Dying in Faith. This uh, title, by the way, comes from Hebrews chapter 11. You'll recall this, perhaps, speaking summarily about Abraham and the saints in like, who, like him, stood in light of challenges in their day. The author begins to bring into focus the lesson of the legacy of people like Abraham and declares of them in verse 13 of chapter 11, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So who were these who died in faith? Well, this follows immediately after the testimony in Hebrews 11 of Sarah and Abraham. And so if we ask ourselves, where do we find the evidence of dying in faith? We turn back to Genesis 23, and that's where we cross-reference Hebrews 11 with our series this morning. Therefore, the goal of this message, my aim today, is to disclose the uh, significance of Sarah's gravesite. 
to disclose the significance of the purchase, the securing of the place where Sarah was buried. The first piece of ground that Abraham laid claim to in the promised land was a cemetery, if you will. Why is this? Today we'll seek to answer that question from Genesis 23. So as you're able, would you stand this morning for the reading of God's Word? Listen as Genesis 23 is proclaimed in your hearing today as we stand in reverence for the eternal truth recorded in God's Holy Scripture. Verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Here is my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me for Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Verse 10, now Ephraim was sitting, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, Oh, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, I give you the cave, that is in it, in the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed his head before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me, I give the peace, I give the price, for the, of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. 17. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before, who, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Last message from Genesis, I referenced two ordinary events in 22 that follow the extraordinary visitation of the Lord in the form of the angel of heaven, three times proclaiming from glory something to Abraham's ears. That is, the audible voice of God himself intervenes in Abraham's moment of obedience and faith, offering Isaac the covenant son, a ram is supernaturally provided as the substitute, and the revelation of covenant confirmed hits the ears of the patriarch. Absolutely extraordinary. But I referenced before that this extraordinary event is followed by two ordinary things. Number one, where Abraham continues to live, Beersheba, Gerar, being a blessing to the foreign kings, even uh, Abimelech in this instance. Second ordinary event, there's a foreshadowing of a 
the family line from which Isaac, Abraham's son, will find his wife. And then today we have a third ordinary event, which is negotiations for a burial plot, burial preparations for Sarah upon her death. Although these appear ordinary, in contrast to the extraordinary visitation of the angel of the Lord, they are nevertheless significant. And one way we can make the application is this. God's supernatural promises are often followed by ordinary, so to speak, or everyday obedience. We have a supernatural secured inheritance in glory, new heavens and new earth for us. How should we live in light of this? Obeying God's word in our just dealings tomorrow. That is one great lesson from this text. Abraham is not unique from us in every way. He's an ordinary individual who had day-to-day responsibilities and grieved at the loss of his beloved wife of so many years. Upon her turning 127, sometime in the course of that year, she gave up the ghost and she needed a burial place. And so Abraham, obeying the Lord and following him, his word, even in negotiating the price of that plot of land, was an example of footsteps of faith in the day-to-day life of the patriarch. Toward the end of his days and upon the death of his beloved wife, Sarah, Abraham finally secures his first legal claim in the land of promise. Think of it this way. These events we read of in Genesis 23, disclosing their significance, well, one point of importance, one thing we can glean from the meaning of these events is that here, Abraham has his first legal claim, a piece of property he can say is his own in the land of promise. Burial preparations for Sarah provide occasion to negotiate for a cemetery plot, if you will, that will house the bones of three generations. Who else will be buried here? Three generations of patriarchs awaiting the promises of God to be fulfilled beyond the grave will be buried in this same tomb. This event profoundly illustrates faith superseding death. As Abraham continues to walk according to the original calling, summoning him out of Ur in chapter 12. His sojournings, that means his travels, have led him to secure a title deed as pledge, security, as, if you will, a down payment of God's promises to make of him a great nation with a land and legacy of importance. These events transpire in Hebron, and little I suspected Abraham know at this time that this small piece of property would become central to events and family pilgrimages far beyond his day. Things that Abraham wouldn't live to see would nevertheless transpire on this very plot of ground. Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah would all join Sarah in death to be buried in this tomb. So Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah, three generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their wives are buried in this same tomb, in this field, in Machpelah. From Hebron, from Hebron, Jacob would depart later from this same area. He would depart for Egypt during famine to join his son Joseph in the salvation of the region due to God's wisdom through his covenant son. This region, Hebron, would become the property holding of Caleb. Some 500 years later, the faithful sojourner who with Joshua was one of the few that lived all the way through the wilderness wanderings and incurred blessings upon the conquest of Canaan. Joshua gives this region to Caleb as a gift. Hebron would serve as a Levitical, later on, city of refuge, a place of importance religiously in the social order of Israel as God constitutes them as a nation. 
They get their constitution, and among it is provisions in the city of refuge in Hebron. And David, later, the great king, would reside here. He would call Hebron home, the place of his anointing after all. This is where he would build his house. So all this and more, you could say, was the fruit of Abraham's testimony of faith, even as he approached the grave himself in these apparently ordinary set of circumstances, burying his wife along the way. With that introduction, let me give you a heading. Sarah's death provided occasion to do the following. Sarah's death in our text today provides occasion to witness to the nations. This continues to happen, verses 1 through 7. We'll seek to draw out that emphasis. Secondly, Sarah's death provided occasion to feature the law of God. Even property rights are in view and implied in verses 8 through 16. And number three, Sarah's death provided occasion to testify to God's purpose and Abraham's faith, verses 17 through 20. And of course, there are cross-references to this piece of ground and to these principles, to these realities in the rest of Scripture. Perhaps we'll touch a few, uh, on a few of those as well along the way. Sarah's death provided an opportunity, as God's sovereignty and providence would have it, for Abraham to witness to the nations. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and she died at Kiriath Arba. What does Abraham do next? Well, first of all, he grieves the loss of his beloved wife, who went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Is this a striking contrast to the glories of covenant confirmed in the prior chapter? We have here a weeping old man grieving the loss of his beloved wife in a land which he doesn't even own a single piece of property yet. It's almost pitiful, is it not, when you consider the glories of God speaking from heaven directly to him about promises of a land and legacy that would outnumber the stars in the heaven and the sand on the seashore. How is it that a man who laid claim to the promises of this magnitude would in the very next chapter find himself in his 120s, grieving the loss of his beloved uh, wife without so much as a piece of land to call his own. Well, we're starting to see when we consider these implications what a strong man of faith Abraham really was. What does it look like to be strong in faith? That you never grieve? No. But that you grieve in faith. That you don't cry, you don't mourn the loss as one who has no hope. The New Testament tells us this as well. We cry because we grieve the loss of our loved ones. And we know that death is an enemy that stands in our way. But we also grieve and we cry and we mourn in times like these in the legacy of Abraham in faith that we do not have a hopeless future the way the unbeliever does. But even in the times of life's greatest loss and pain, there yet remains promises, as we've said before, that supersede the grave. Abraham is about to testify to these things to the nations. First of all, we see him as a sojourner presenting himself to the Hittites. Verse 4, he rose up in three before his dead and said to the Hittites, verse 4, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Contrast this with the way he's acknowledged by the foreigners. Hear us, my Lord, verse 6. You are a prince of God among us. So which is he? Is he a sojourner and foreigner among them? Or is he a prince of God among them? Well, he's both in a sense. But isn't it interesting that Abraham introduces himself to the Hittites in a humble manner? I am a sojourner and a foreigner. 
Therefore, I approach you to negotiate and to provide a just compensation for a piece of ground to bury my dead. Abraham, in verse 7, he rose and bowed to the Hittites. This is a gesture of respect and honoring. Abraham, again, in his posture of humility, in verse 12, he bowed down before the people of the land. Was Abraham bowing in a sense of submission before a higher authority? No. But what he was doing was acknowledging in, hum in humility his status as a sojourner and foreigner among a people uh, that uh, control the rights to this property at this time. His self-identity as he approaches foreign neighbors is one that does not take advantage of the promises of God for the cause of his pride. The blessings of covenant that God has given us should never be in service to our pride. This is such a strong point. Abraham was a testimony to, they knew that he was important. I mean, the word had got out. You don't think the king of Gerar knew that Abraham was visited by the sovereign? That same sovereign visited Abimelech in his own dreams and said, you're a dead man if you do not honor this prophet. Abimelech was no dummy. He honored the prophet of God. You are a prince among us. He would join the Hittites and saying, they knew that this man was to be respected and to be feared, and that his God meant business was real and was serious. They may not have been believers per se, but they were not stupid. They knew that Abraham had a specific and extraordinary calling, and they acknowledged as much the foreigners here. However, in spite of the adulation or the affirmation of the people around, Abraham refused the testimony of his faith to use that as an occasion for his own pride. Abraham joined the heart of John the Baptist, who also had an extraordinary call, and said in as many words or actions, I must decrease, he must increase. Abraham is winding down. He's approaching his end of days. He knows that he won't exert his importance and authority as, you know, currently he enjoys forever. After all, he's burying his wife, and he himself is 120 plus years old. But he does know one thing. The promises of God will outlast his own death. He may be a sojourner, a mere foreigner, he may be facing the grave. He might be weeping because he's burying his wife. But there is a testimony that will endure beyond him. So the investment of Abraham's faith and the testimony of that which would be beyond him, the purposes of God, his plan in history, ultimately the son of Abraham that would come from his children's children's children, that is, uh, Abraham pointed that direction even in his dealings with the foreign leaders. The foreign leaders respected him, but he did not capitalize on their respect for personal gain. He insisted on paying full market value, even for this piece of property. And this is a witness to the nations. It's a witness to us. Never let the blessings of covenant serve your pride. This is such an important point. And I suggest to you that maintaining this distinction between the God who is to be exalted and glorified and we who need to humbly present ourselves as unworthy of that glory, mere broken sinners and worthy of hell and the judgment of God, were it not for His grace alone, always maintaining that distinction is absolutely key to being a faithful witness to the nations. If we capitalize on the opportunity of what we are promised in Christ to serve ourselves, our flesh, or our pride, I suggest to you that these are some of the first seeds of apostasy that we feel. In other words, another way to put it, if we identify as a Christian merely for what it can gain for us personally, a people group, an, you know, um, 
an identity, a culture, a community, uh, something that serves ourselves, and that becomes higher, or that is uh, uh, in service of pride, we identify as a Christian, that is not a strong foundation, and that is not ultimately what being a Christian really is. Being a Christian really is dying to flesh, surrendering, and embracing identity in Christ as a blood-bought, hell-deserving, one-time sinner, now ransomed and redeemed. Abraham modeled this kind of humility in testifying to the nations. God's covenant was great. Yahweh was to be feared. But he was a mere sojourner and foreigner and identified himself as such in this instance. Nevertheless, Abraham, to the unbeliever, was a prince. The Hittites answered him, Hear us, uh, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. Was their response correct or was Abraham's presentation correct? Both are correct. In these people's acknowledgement of Abraham and the blessing and anointing of God upon him, they were presuming a good and reverential attitude, may I suggest. In fact, these moments are a foreshadowing of glories yet to come. For a quick cross-reference, would you turn with me to 2 Chronicles 9? In the future, now we're talking 1,200 years later or thereabouts, there's going to be a significant turning of the tables. I mean, this scene is really touching and quite um, profound in its simple um, arrangement. We can relate to Abraham, you know, seeking the good graces of the foreigners around him and negotiating this contract and so forth. But there would come a time in the future where this humility or this uh, humble posture, if you will, would give way to an authoritative uh, claim on the land that will... Uh, result in this kind of reaction. This is 2 Chronicles 9. During the reign of Solomon, we pick up on the testimony of the glories of Solomon in verses 1 and following. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions. Having a very great retinue and camels, bearing spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from Solomon that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, cupbearers, uh, and their clothing, his burnt offerings, and what he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. The queen of the south, this is the one referred to, Jesus testified of her testimony in Matthew 12. When she came to the land, and saw the prince of God, Solomon, residing in the place of God's promise, namely Canaan, the evidence of God's blessing and covenant fulfilled was so profound, it took her breath away. She said to the king, the report was true. I've heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, verse 6, but I did not believe the reports until I came, and now my own eyes had seen it, and behold, half the greatness of your wisdom was not told me. You surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your wives." Happy are these your servants you continually stand, who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, this is Yahweh she, she's referring to, who has delighted in you and set you on his throne as king for the Lord your God. Because your God loved Israel and would establish them forever, he has made you king over them that you may execute justice and righteousness. Twelve hundred years later. Now we go back to our text today. And when the Hittites answer Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Have the choices of our tombs to bury your dead. We can see a sort of foreshadowing and an anticipation 
of the covenant of God, the claim to the land, in a little significant prophecy here, or prophetically here, however small, that will develop into a full flowering and evidence as Solomon's establishment in the land, the building of houses, the ordering of society, the blessing of his wisdom, the influence of his you know, uh, reach and realm of his kingdom to his servants and beyond and to the nations of the earth. Now Abraham, in this instance, probably could not have imagined when and how the promises would come. But he staked his claim knowing that God would fulfill in his due course and time and through his servants and through his lineage the promises that he had revealed to his servant Abraham. And do we have that kind of faith? I'm telling you, saints, it's required of us. Because the world in which we live may not recognize that the heirs of the new heavens and new earth are you and me as believers. And we present ourselves not in pride, as, uh, but instead as we should present ourselves as Abraham did. Nevertheless, don't forget that the promises that God has given us, the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus, that will be fulfilled even beyond our own grave, is such that given God's time, it will overwhelm the unbeliever with the manifestation of the presence and power of God such that he will ultimately only get the glory. So Abraham was a witness to the nations as a sojourner and as a prince. And as a prince acknowledged as such, that is one favored and blessed by the Lord to rule on his behalf by his pagan neighbors, it was a foretaste of the kind of fulfillment that this was just a piece of, but it would unfold in God's time. And thirdly, as a witness to the nations, we see Abraham as an ally, making an allegiance, something of his foreign policy. He will enter into a contract at full price with those he lives with. Alliances should serve to protect the integrity of the covenant calling, not compromise it. We won't turn there today, but back in chapter 14, 21 through 23, Abraham partakes of the covenant meal that is spread before him through the priest-king figure, Melchizedek. And he enters into fellowship with that king, and it reinforces and strengthens the covenant. However, there are gifts and favors that are offered to him by the king of Sodom, and Abraham rejects those. Why? Because Abraham, in these instances, demonstrates this witness. He will not make alliances with anyone who will, uh, that will comp serve to compromise the covenant and calling and the message and the testimony of God's righteousness with the people who surround him. Now, these are Abraham in the positive instances. There are times when he walked, himself walked in the flesh, and didn't evidence this kind of conviction as thoroughly as he does here. Nevertheless, in this interaction and the interaction with the king of Sodom, Abraham was a witness to the nations that there should not be any unequal yoking, the way Paul would talk about it in the New Testament. There should not be any compromise as to the word and message of God by making allegiances inappropriately with those who are enemies of God's people. Abraham refuses to do so in this case, just as he refused to do so in chapter 14, verses 21 through 23, in the case of Sodom. So Sarah's death, you see how God used it? In one way, it provided occasion for him, Abraham, to witness to the nations as sojourner, as prince, and as a covenant keeper. Second major point. Sarah's death provides an occasion for Abraham to feature the law of God in this negotiation. Now, this is a pretty detailed account of the contract 
terms that were arrived at between Ephron, the owner of the property, and Abraham himself. And we are given sort of a front row seat on the back and forth. Somebody carefully documented this exchange and used it, and it stood, presumably, as a legal instrument to verify that Abraham was the rightful, legitimate owner, that it could not be refuted because it was written, signed, and witnessed by those who were involved. This is a property contract uh, whose negotiations commence as we continue to read. In verse 9, verse 8, he, Abraham, said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, is at the end of the field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. A property contract negotiations are about to continue. Kids, I have a question for you. So here's the situation. Abraham wants a piece of property. Another guy owns it. Abraham is going to give him full price. What of the Ten Commandments relate to this, these events, do you guys think? So which of the Ten Commandments relate to this exchange? Is this a hard question? So you want a piece of property, so you offer just payment. You offer full price. What commandment are you careful to follow? Yeah, Isaac. Uh, adultery. An adultery, not quite, not quite. So what's in one of the Ten Commandments that relates to the situation, people? Remember, property is in view. The exchange of uh, money for that property. What are the Ten Commandments? Adults, you can shout one out. Thou shalt not steal. It's very good. Thank you. So Abraham does not lay claim to this property illegitimately. Uh, he's going to pay the full price for the property. He will not assume that it's his, take it as his own. So thou shalt not steal is featured here. What's another of the Ten Commandments that's featured here or upheld in this exchange? How about covetousness? Thou shalt not covet. Abraham does not approach this out of covetousness. In other words, Abraham knows that he is the rightful heir to this whole realm. So does he resent the fact that it's owned by foreign occupiers at this time? He does not. Even the promises of God in the future, uh, Abraham is careful to abide by God's purposes and timing and rightful means of securing the land. And in this instance, the rightful means for securing the land is just payment to the property owner. So thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, and I submit there's a third commandment in view as well, because there's witnesses, right guys? There's witnesses that testify to the truth of what happened. So what commandment is in view there? Thou shalt not bear, thou shalt not bear false witness. So why do I bring this up? Well, this occasion, implicitly and explicitly, provides an opportunity for Abraham to feature the law of God. These three laws are behind this exchange. Do not steal, do not covet, do not bear false witness. And this is a prefiguring of the order of God's world that he would write down in the law code he gave to Moses. Nevertheless, as a testimony to the eternal reality, the eternal objective truth of God's law and Ten Commandments, these commandments are present before they were written down in Moses, and they were part of the value, structure, and the economic principles that governed this exchange. And is this any less, quote-unquote, spiritual than the reality of the future? No. God is sovereign over the means. God is sovereign over property exchange. God is sovereign over economics. Our God is sufficient 
and his word is comprehensive. It covers all of life. So don't miss this opportunity, even at Sarah's death, which provided an occasion to feature the law of God. First of all, we have property ownership in view. This exchange presupposes the value and virtue of private property. Ephron is the right, rightful owner of this burial plot at the time when Abraham approaches him. And he will not secure it illegitimately, but he would follow the law of God, being careful not to violate the commandment to not steal, to not covet, and be careful to verify this exchange by witnesses testifying to the same, so that everyone is accountable not to bear false witness. Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, verse 10. Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, O oh, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it, in the sight of the sons of my people. Now, where is this exchange taking place? Did you catch it? Where is this negotiation happening? It says, of all who went in at the gate of his city. There's a reference to gates here. Another reference, verse 18. Before all who went in at the gate of his city, Abraham took possession in the presence of the Hittites. Do you remember the promise just one chapter previous that we covered before? Surely I will bless you, God says of Abraham. Multiply your offspring. They shall be as many as the stars and the grains of sand. But what else will happen? Your offspring shall possess the gates, uh, gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And the very next exchange that's recorded is Abraham sitting at the gate of foreign occupiers in one sense to the promised land and negotiating for the first legal claim to the land. And that legal claim will unfold in the future. But here at the gate of the city in Hebron, a property exchange is taking place. This is a preliminary fulfillment of what God would, uh, would, of what God would accomplish through the line of Abraham in gate after gate after gate, as eventually the whole nation is either conquered in the conquest of Canaan or secured by God's providential means by other ways as they continue to take possession of his promises moving forward. Property ownership. Who's the rightful owner? Ephron. You see the context is Abraham addressing the Hittites as a group, and then there's an individual who's singled out. Why? Because he happens to own this piece of ground. Abraham offers him full price, that is, just compensation. For the full price, let me give it to you in the presence as property for a burying place. And this is emphasized even more in verse 16, second portion of the verse. He named in the hearing, so they negotiate, and he weighs out the silver, which is the medium of exchange, something of intrinsic value, a biblical denomination, if you will. It's a representation of wealth. There's so much here by way of implication for biblical means of exchange and the, and the law of God related to even commerce. And in the hearing of the Hittites, he weighs out 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So there is a universal standard of value that is not compromised, but it is upheld in this exchange. There is just compensation, full price, the price of the field according to the weights current, the voluntarily agreed upon standards, objective, non-debatable, non-debased. We will not lie, and Abraham will not suffer a lie as to the weights and measures. And therefore, economic policy, you know, the chairman of the Federal Reserve ought to read Genesis 23 and repent. What is the Federal Reserve? Well, it's a complicated construction in modern governance which allows nations to mess with currency and introduce unjust weights and measures. 
to manipulate the medium of exchange and thereby break the Ten Commandments. Bearing false witness, and theft, and, it's a, and, and people are tolerated because they're covetous. And this is the way our nation is ordered with respect to monetary policy. Pardon me for sounding a little libertarian today, but insofar as some of these political philosophies have truth in them, is insofar as they are based upon the Word of God. And the Word of God tells us that His law should be upheld and featured even in our economic exchanges. And that the featuring of His law in the goings-on of a nation is the duty of those who walk in His footsteps. Abraham was mindful of this and witnessed to the, those around him before the law was even codified by the finger of God in the hand of Moses in his negotiations and purchasing a place for his wife to be married. And this negotiation had witnesses. And this context allows for an irrefutable, legally binding claim, mutually witnessed. This legal contract will serve as, if you will, a pledge, a security, escrow, down payment, choose your a word. It's basically the proof in hand of Abraham's ownership within Canaan land. Yes, it's only a field with a cave on the corner, but nevertheless, it's significant. It represents something. It's a down payment, if you will, on God's promises, and God, through other means, will eventually give his children the whole region. Even the city in which this takes place at the gates of Hebron will be claimed by Abraham's children hundreds of years later. It will be given as a gift upon the, by Joshua to Caleb upon the conquest of the promised land, as we said before. It will be set up as a city of refuge in the social order and in the legal proceedings and in God's picture of redemption in the day when the nation of Israel is established in this region. It will be the very place where the anointing of King David, another forerunner of Christ, a picture of one to come, a prefiguring of a son of Abraham to come, where he will be anointed and therefore he will honor this region and set up residence and eventually move to prepare to build God a home and not far from here as well. And his son will follow through with that. We read of Solomon's testimony before. Therefore, Sarah's death provided occasion for something of, of a simple property exchange that was far more meaningful than you might first assume. It was a witness to the nations, and it featured the law of God. And finally, this morning, this exchange testified to God's purpose and Abraham's faith. In the end, Abraham ends up with a title deed to this area of Canaan. This field and cave begin, uh, is transferred to him by virtue of this legal instrument we read of in verses 17 through 20. What we're reading here is something of a literal title deed to a piece of ground. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that is on it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. That's a legal description of the land, something like a property abstract, if you're familiar with that, if you are a property owner. It's a legal description of the parameters of what Abraham received lawfully. It's an irrefutable legal claim that is here documented in the text. To Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city, this is a certifiable contract. Therefore, this is something that Abraham has in hand, legal claim to this piece of ground. Verse 19, after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place 
by the Hittites. Now, this ends up being a covenant history milestone. Again, if you turn to Acts 17, 15, we'll, I'll just leave that for your future study. You have a sermon proclaimed by Stephen. We're talking thousands of years later, 1800-ish or something. And uh, Stephen is proclaiming the reality of God's purposes through redemptive history that gave a testimony to the coming of Jesus Christ that uh, gave those with ears to hear the evidence that he would arrive. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, those who condemned Stephen and Jesus Christ himself to death, they refused to open their eyes to the reality of what happened. One of the things that they were blind to, Stephen says, is the purpose of this very burial plot. He says, he references as a milestone in covenant history, the property that Abraham secured by legal contract as a place to house the bones of three generations of patriarchs in faith of God's future promises. And Stephen appealed to this as evidence of God's sovereign plan through history. In other words, just like God moved our forefather Abraham to pay full price for this piece of land in faith that God would give him that inheritance, that land inheritance to his children, so God has given us the son of Abraham, the son of David, Jesus Christ, to secure our own eternal possession and glory. And it is this son of Abraham, this son of David, this son of God that you have killed. Repent and believe. Join the testimony of those whose bones were buried in the place, in a tomb, waiting for another tomb in Canaan, which would give them full manifest claim to the covenant promises. That is the message that Stephen preaches, referring to this very piece of real estate in his sermon almost 2,000 years later. Abraham testified to God's purposes, and he did so in faith. What did he do in this act? He honored God's future intentions for his children and for the land that he had promised. Abraham chose to be buried, and, and Sarah was buried in the title deed for God's future promises. I was preparing this message this week. I couldn't help but think of our brother Stanley Clark, who we buried as a church not long ago. And I've probably referenced this before. It's just such a striking thing and such a good testimony to us that my Uncle Stanley chose to do. In his hands, in that casket, is a slip of paper. And on that slip of paper is written a few scriptures. I'll read them to you. <clears throat> Jude, chapter 1, only chapter, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Uh, Stanley chose to be buried with the title deed of God's future promises in his very hands. And he's there residing under the soil in Emily, Minnesota to this day, with the title deed to his claim to future inheritance buried with him. This is what Abraham and Sarah did as well. In their death, they honored God's future intentions. Why do I say that Stanley holds the title deed? Why? Because it is Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection in a tomb about 18 miles from where Abraham and Sarah were buried that would secure the ultimate promises to the covenant of Abraham and the new covenant for you and me. And it is Jesus Christ, the one who was buried in another tomb in Canaan, 
that demonstrated victory over death, sin, hell, and the grave when he burst forth just three days later. And that is our title deed to the glorious new heavens and new earth, new Jerusalem, and God's promises superseding the grave and what lies beyond. When you die, will you honor the Lord's future intentions with your body and your, his future intentions with, for your future in your death? That's what a Christian burial looks like, may I submit. It looks like what Abraham did. Now this, uh, and if you look through the book of Hebrews, you'll see that this location is significant. And there's a pilgrimage for the very bones. Joseph himself was carried through the Red Sea. Did you know that? That Joseph went through the Red Sea, but it was just his bones. He went with the children of Israel back to this same region, uh, an area not far away, and he himself was buried in the Promised Land, along with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Why? Because they testified in their death. They wanted to be buried in the context of the title deed to God's future promises superseding death, and so they did. We will die as well if the Lord tarries. We, and in his providence, will one day face the winding down of our physical existence on this earth. But I pray as that day approaches that our faith would only wind up. I've said this before, but the elderly that I have met that are more encouraging to me than all the zeal of youth are the ones who the light of eternity is all the brighter in their eyes the closer they get to the grave. That is an incredible testimony of faith. Those are the ones, as they approach the end of days, that hold the title deed of God's future promises in their heart, and it gives them grace to embrace what would otherwise be nothing but a tragic reality of the wages of sin in a fallen world. So in death, Abraham testifies to God's purposes, and that really is an incredible statement of faith. And so we are called to do the same. This tomb, as I mentioned, was about 18 miles from Jerusalem. Now, this is what I think happened. Now, I just submit this. I can't prove this from Scripture, but I love to imagine this circumstance. In Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53, Jesus dies. And as we have referenced in this resurrection season of late, one of the consequences of his death, if you will, one of the consequences of Jesus entering the tomb as a son of man and the son of God, and the death by and by de and death by propitiation, satisfying the sins of the elect. One of the consequences is as his grave is closed, other graves are opened. The saints who had fallen asleep rose from the dead on that day, and at Jesus' resurrection, three days later, appeared to many in the holy city. I imagine Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, perhaps Jacob and Leah rising up out of that grave in Hebron and taking that 18-mile journey and on the day of his resurrection, introducing themselves by knocking on the door of residents of the holy city and saying, guess who I am? It's a powerful thing to think about. I don't know if that specifically happened in their case, but I bring that up as an illustration to put some reality to the truths. Now, this grave scenario, this sad last days of Abraham and Sarah, gives way to hope fulfilled and a glorious tomb reality in the future. That is to say, those who died in faith, as he, the author of Hebrews says, would receive the rewards of their faith, sovereign gift given to them by God, on the day when another tomb was inhabited by the son of Abraham who would supersede death in his suffering and his uh, work on Calvary where the spear 
pierced his side and the nails pierced his hands and feet. And through that death, we have eternal life. And the title deed was finally secure for Abraham and all who shared his hope that one day a son would come from his lineage who would secure access to eternal life and reconciliation and communion with the Father forever without end. These are the glorious promises that the gospel proclaims to us as we see them in light of God's purposes through history. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the amazing truth of your gospel revealed from the pages of Abraham's life to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ our Lord, crucified and buried and resurrected at the fullness of time. Lord, I pray that we would worship and serve our resurrected and ascended Savior all the more diligently, faithfully, and encouraged by these realities that we would, even in facing our own death, die in faith knowing that we have eternal life in Christ our Lord and the inheritance of his future purposes for heaven and earth as his redeemed and blood-bought ones. We thank you for these realities. May we treasure them all our days. And the closer that the end approaches in this life, may the light of eternity be all the brighter in our spiritual eyes as we witness and experience the realities of what Jesus died for, even in our future. In his name we pray. Amen.